Hi, guys. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Dr. Steven Snyder. He's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Snyder has been in private practice in Manhattan for almost two decades, specializing in sex and relationship issues. He's also the author of Love Worth Making. Everybody has this sense because, you know, we have clothes, our bodies are covered up, sex is never done in public, and nobody really knows. And so people's imaginations go wild and they think everybody else is having much better sex than they are and everybody else is good and they're bad, which is a natural human shame response. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, sat down with Dr. Snyder to talk about the feelings behind sex and why so many people seem disconnected. They also dispel some myths about intimacy in long-term relationships and cover the different ways that he sees men and women approaching desire. You have to get over the idea that all arousal has to lead to orgasm and that all arousal has to lead to sex. Because a lot of couples treat arousal like it's some kind of painful state of being. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Dr. Steven Snyder. In a nutshell, can you sort of explain that your general, like what you were trying to achieve with Love Worth Making? Okay, good. I was reacting to the fact that I couldn't find any good books on sex to give to patients in my office. They were books on kink. They were books on vibrators. They were books on technique. They were books on orgasms. They were books on sexual science. There was nothing about sexual feelings. There was a lot of books about feelings, but nothing about the actual feelings that people might have really in the thick of it with sex. What does it feel like to be aroused? What might get in the way? What other feelings might come up and what might you want to do with them? So I thought to myself, if I want to give my patients a book about sexual feelings, I have to write it myself, unfortunately. What do most patients come to you for? Like, is it this, this world of sexual feelings? Is it just feeling out of touch, waning no, no, no. intimacy? They don't, they, don't, they don't identify it as a lack of understanding of sexual feelings. They usually identify it as a feeling of inferiority in some way. Mm-hmm. Guy feels inferior because he loses his erections or because he climaxes too quickly. Woman feels inferior because she never craves sex or because she can't have an orgasm without a vibrator. A couple um, feels inferior. Commonest situation in my office is a woman calls me up, says my husband has gone missing in bed. Hmm. I feel he doesn't desire me anymore. That's really the biggie in the 21st century. Mm. So people usually call up because they feel miserable and discouraged because they don't feel the sex they're having is matching up to the idea of what they think it should be like. So they don't identify it as being a problem with feelings, but very often it's a problem with feelings. Is the is it that they're not in their bodies? Is it... That's one of the things. Uh, many women especially are disconnected from their bodies. Many men as well. Uh, often they don't really know what the feelings are. They don't give the roadmap of what sex is supposed to be like. So one of the first things that I tell people in the office, which is one of the first things I tell people in the book, is let's look at what arousal is supposed to feel like according to the natural plan. First of all, it's supposed to involve loss of IQ points. You're supposed to get kind of dumb. And if you're feeling like you're fully capable of taking the SATs during sex, that's not a good thing. 
it's supposed to kind of like uh, uh, soften you up and dumb you down a little bit. Hmm. Second thing is it's supposed to completely absorb your attention. And that's the thing a lot of people have trouble with. They have trouble getting into the moment and having their attention be absorbed. It should distort your time sense. People who are sexually aroused tend to arrive late at meetings where they don't arrive at all because they kind of forgot about it. Mm. And finally, it should give you a feeling of, yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. That's, that's where I live. Thank you for bringing me home. Oh, yeah, th- this is where I'm supposed to be. Mm. should give you that deep feeling of validation. Interesting. So what are the tools? Like if it's – what are the tools for – overcoming that or where do they start? First tool is very simple, is to just lay out what the roadmap is. That's where we want to go. Um, We're not going to be talking about so much about intercourse and we're definitely not going to be talking about orgasm. I joke in the book that we sex therapists are the only people in the world who don't care about orgasms. What we really care about is did sex really make a person feel that special, special kind of dumb and happy, stupid, validated, I don't have to do anything, everything's fine kind of feeling. I know Esther Perel always says that sex for women is really an act of narcissism, that we need to feel like we're turning on men. And is that like how that I I can relate to that. I understand that. Absolutely. Because most women find it deeply validating to be the object of male desire. Mm -hmm. You know, women's magazines, Allure, Mm -hmm. there's a whole magazine called Allure. Mm -hmm. There's a whole magazine called Self Magazine. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking narcissism. Now, it's not just that women are narcissism. Any sex therapist who's ever treated a man for an erection problem knows that men can be plenty narcissistic when it comes to sex. So women don't have the monopoly on narcissism. I go further than that. I say sex itself is narcissistic in a healthy way. Very young children have healthy narcissism, lots of it. They want what they want, and they feel they're entitled to it. Mm-hmm. They don't think about, am I wanting too much cake? Am I being too demanding? Am I being too grabby? You know, a one or a two-year-old, they go, I want ice cream. I want it with a cone. And it's a uh, beautiful thing to watch because they haven't yet had to tame their healthy narcissism. Mm. And the healthy narcissism, it what leads you to want to look out for your own self-interests. Mm. Most of us, as we go through life, growing up involves taming it while not killing it off completely. So we learn that we have to stand in line. And unfortunately, that we're not the most important person in the world at all times. And that other people have priorities and that sometimes it's okay. You could be frustrated. You can't have mom's complete attention. But okay, if you behave yourself, she'll read you a bedtime story after dinner. And we make these little compromises. And gradually, the art of being a parent is to whittle down your child's healthy narcissism to where it's still there, but it's just been made into a form that can be accommodated to 21st century world. In sex, that all goes out the window. In sex, we want to be the most important person in the world. We want to be the only person in the world. We want to be treated like we're wonderful and we're all the other person cares about. And that's in the nature of sexual arousal. It's a revival of that primitive, healthy narcissism. That's why it's such a beautiful thing. And how does that work in relationship with the partner? Oh, it works beautifully. Beautifully. Imagine you're with a partner and the partner is enjoying your body so much that they're completely transported. For most people, that's a pretty validating experience. Mm. And that's true whether you're straight or gay or whatever. So I usually find in my office, and I think most sex therapists find, that if people are appropriately Mm, selfish in that way, 
That's erotic. Passion is selfish. As I'm always saying, no hero in a romance novel ever rips off the woman's clothes and then says, now tell me how you like to be touched. That's that primitive, healthy narcissism that just says, I want you. I want you. I am yours and you are mine. It's very, very primitive. It's very infantile. Hmm. That's why all love songs all have the word baby, you know, because there's something evocative there. <laughs> it's interesting because it's you. I think one of the myths about sex, for women at least, is that it's this coming together and this union and this mind meld, and you're supposed to fall into each other's eyes and be in the same place. Mm-hmm. And what I don't know if what you're saying is counter, but what you're saying, I think, is like you have to preserve your it is about you, it is not about the couple. Well, it's funky, and the reason it's funky. My theory, which I talk about in the book, is that it's infantile, that sex is a positive and therapeutic regression to an infantile state. It's a little bit like vacations are infantile. You get waited on when you're on vacation. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do the dishes when you're on vacation. And sex is infantile in that same way. It's a break from the frustrations and narcissistic disappointments of adult life. So you go back to that early, early state. And in that early, early state, the conventional emotional silos haven't really been formed yet. The silo between self and other hasn't really been formed yet. And that accounts for, I think, some of that oceanic, melding, merging, fusing kind of experience. The distinction between excitement and relaxation hasn't been formed yet. So sex is exciting. Yeah, it's also deeply relaxing for most people. And the distinction between caring and ruthlessness hasn't been formed yet. So great sex is caring, but it's also kind of ruthless. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the reasons the concepts tend to be confusing when it comes to sex is that the emotions that are dealt with are just so primitive that the usual categories don't really apply. Did I answer your question or not? No, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's interesting – even in the process of sex therapy and you start talking about it and do you not find that people then get even more into their heads or is, no. is are you trying to deprogram people? Well, this started off with Masters and Johnson. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really Masters, it was Johnson. It was, it was William Masters' uh, for original assistant and then his coworker, Virginia Johnson, who when she was a small girl, her mother would calm her down by stroking her face with her hands. Mm. And she remembered how that action was both emotional and physical, and it kept her in the moment, and it enabled her to just calm down and direct her attention just to the fingertips on her face. And that was the insight that led to Masters and Johnson's original sex therapy technique, which was called sensate focus, where just lie there and one person would just experience the other person's body with their hands. And there was no demand to do anything. You were really just paying attention in the present moment to whatever was happening emotionally, physically. If you were having thoughts, okay, you were having thoughts, you didn't get too involved with them. See where they went. Bring your attention back to the hand. Mm -hmm. And most people found that deeply, deeply relaxing. Essentially, in 21st century vocabulary, it's a mindfulness technique. Right. And all the original sex techniques were originally mindfulness techniques. We just didn't have the word mindfulness back then. And do you think that that, so that has carried through? Oh, absolutely. It's essentially like sex is a kind of meditation. Well, that's a really good question. My method is you should cultivate a state of experience in the moment with as little judgment as possible as a prelude to sex. Mm. And if possible, you should carry that sense of being in the moment without judgment into the experience of being aroused. And it does naturally lend itself to that 
if you let that happen. But you don't necessarily want to be so conscious of that during sex. I call it the two-step. Step one is a mindfulness experience of some kind, and step two is just having sex. Isn't it typical for sex therapists to give clients homework? Like, what's yeah, your we homework? Yeah, we used to. Okay. Originally, Masters and Johnson, you would go down and rent a hotel room for two weeks in St. Louis, and they were the only sex therapists in the world, so you had to come to the Ramada Inn or whatever it was in St. <laughs> Louis, and you would meet with Masters and Johnson every morning, and every afternoon, you'd go back to your hotel room and do what they told you to do, so it was very enforced that way. But then it kind of got spread in the 70s and 80s and 90s to where therapists in their office were seeing patients once a week and giving them homework. And I think that must have worked back then. But in the current era, it really doesn't work because people really don't do the homework. Mm. So I usually just keep give people more diffuse suggestions. Some therapists do different, but I'm a little more psychologically oriented and a little less behaviorally oriented than most therapists. Are there any sort of one-size-fits-all generalizations of things that apply to almost every single couple who you see? Was there anything that universally we sex therapists always do? Or just like, is there something in your toolkit that anyone listening would, would be like, that probably applies to me. I should try that. Oh, absolutely. Pay attention to what you're actually feeling during the sexual experience. Are you losing any IQ points? Hmm. Do you feel absorbed? Do you feel happy? Sex should be a happy experience. If you don't feel happy, then it's not going to be too erotic. Mm -hmm. So that's an absolute one. And then if they're like, yes, that resonates. I don't feel happy. Like, right. is that a problem with the relationship? Is that a problem? Like there's some internal block or Could trauma? be anything. Often it's what we call an ant. That's a phrase borrowed from the cognitive therapist. It's A-N-T, which stands for automatic negative thought. Mm. Like my thighs are too big or she is not going to be as excited by me as she was by her last boyfriend who was really huge or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of thoughts can make you very, very unhappy. A lot of sexual unhappiness comes from automatic negative thoughts. We probably don't have as exciting sex as she had with her last boyfriend mm -hmm. or as our neighbors are having. And why are we even having to go to a sex therapist? This feels really humiliating. So these are common automatic negative thoughts that people have. That's the biggest reason that people aren't happy in the sexual experience. Mm. The best technique for that is usually to do as the uh, Buddhists used to talk about, let your thoughts come into your home, but don't serve them tea. <laughs> Just notice that uh, the mindfulness therapists call this metacognitive awareness, that you're just aware of those thoughts. Oh, yeah, I can see I'm having this thought of that it's humiliating to have to be a, seeing a sex therapist. Mm, thought is there. Okay, well, let's see where it goes. Mm. And you just don't feed it that much emotion. That's the key. The key is to save your emotion for the good stuff. Do you see a lot, and particularly now in light of Me Too, I feel like every single woman I know has had some sort of trauma. Oh, absolutely. Uh, many women have been raped, mm -hmm. often by an acquaintance. Many, many women have been coerced to one degree or another, and all women have been harassed. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is, 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 is just about universal. Yeah. I have a colleague, Sally Foley in Michigan, who writes, there is an awareness that dawns on women as they get near to puberty that they have to be cautious and they have to be wary. And that wariness is, is inevitably going to be a part of their sexual experience, which is a terrible shame. Yeah. And how in your office, like, do you try to unpack that? Or is it more about the thought can come, let it go, let's not relive it? Do you have a, any personal 
philosophy. There's such a, there's such a variety of thoughts. Mm-hmm. There are really three big categories. The one is a flashback, an automatic thought where you really have a reliving or a re-experiencing. And that's got a whole technology to how to deal with that. The second is there's something wrong with me. And that's an automatic negative thought that can be slowed down and unpacked in the moment. And the third one is there's something bad about sex in general. Mm -hmm. And similarly, you can slow that one down and think about it. So you can do a lot with those negative thoughts. One of the things is helping women to understand that they've been traumatized at all because often there's some denial about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like there's sort of the two schools of like you have to address it head on and others who are like some things can just be buried. And I don't, I don't, obviously I don't know the answer. And I, well, it's a question of where the leading edge is. You Mm -hmm. certainly don't want to go on a fishing expedition for trauma Mm -hmm. because that's not a good idea. But if something looks like it's presenting either in the form of a flashback or in the form of something that just doesn't make sense, a really romantic getaway, a bed and breakfast, and then you just really just don't feel like having sex or you find yourself picking a fight with your partner. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. Then maybe there's something there that we should talk about. But if it's not presenting a problem, that's why we sex therapists are a little different from most therapists. Most therapy is about pain. Sex therapy is just about having a good time. So (laughs) if you're having a good time and nothing seems to be interrupting it, then we we don't go on a fishing expedition. (laughs) I like that. Just thinking about, I I like this idea that you guys aren't orgasm focused because I think that sort of goal oriented can be very not sexy. Exactly. The analogy that I use in the book is that if sex is like a meal, you don't want to just go out to dinner just hoping to have dessert. Because orgasm is dessert. just means, uh, at least for men, maybe I'm a little man-centric this way, it means the, the, the meal is over. And you just get, you know, you, you get your check and you got to pay the bill. But what you really want to do is you want to, again, be in the moment, this mindfulness idea. And you want to be fully in the moment with the appetizers. You don't want to be thinking, God, I can't wait till my entree gets here. That's not the way to enjoy sex. You want to be thinking, hmm, okay. And then when the entree comes, you want to think, God, the appetizers were so good. We get an entree too? Fantastic. (laughs) We get to have intercourse too? Unbelievable. And then you're really, really enjoying intercourse and or whatever it is that's your main course. um, And the dessert tray comes around and you go, there's dessert. I love this place. This is amazing. That way you're enjoying and you're in the moment for everything. Obviously, that's not how a lot of couples have sex. They go, okay, it's 11 p.m. We both got to get up in the morning and we uh, need to give everybody an orgasm so we can go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So they evolve the most efficient way uh, to get the right friction in the right place, maybe a little fantasy added in. And what gets left out is the whole regressive validation heart aspect of really being in the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Dr. Steven Snyder in a minute. I was obsessed with magazines growing up. W, Interview, Vogue. I don't want to age myself here, but there was no social media. This was really sort of my only window into the world growing up in Montana. I put tear sheets all over my walls. I obsessed over magazines. And I thought that the magazine world was something I couldn't touch, but I got a break after college and started a career at Lucky. And that career primarily consisted of packing boxes and checking in clothing samples and getting coffee. And that was all fine with me. Eventually, I became an editor. 
fast forward to Goop many, many years later. A lot of what we do is obviously digital, but it was a dream come true to be able to create a print version of Goop, complete with food, culture, style, and wellness, concepts similar to what we do on the website, but a totally different format when you're holding it in your hands as a magazine. Our third issue of Goop Magazine is out now. It's my favorite so far, stunning and full of fascinating deep dives, delicious recipes, indispensable travel advice, and really beautiful fashion. I'm also really excited because for the first time, we are offering a magazine subscription. We'll send you four issues of the magazine right to your door. And as a thank you for signing up, we're also going to give you an amazing gift. A mini exfoliating instant facial, which is a bestseller in Goop. We literally cannot keep it in stock. And a five-pack of Goop Glow, which is a skin super powder that you can drop right into your water. I drink mine every morning at the gym. To learn more and sign up, go to goopmagazine.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Steven Snyder. I think women and we're we're trained to give, right? And I think it's it's part of sort of the feminine power. And I, but it's and it's a beautiful thing. But how do you train? How do you get women to break that? To move out of that being a vessel? Interesting. I I don't I don't encounter it in the exact same way. The ideal, and maybe I'm thinking like a man here, but the ideal when I talk to women in my office. And they nod their heads. They go, you are somebody that he desires. He's enjoying your body. You and your body are his complete focus. You feel his excitement. You feel his uh, arousal, his hunger for you. That's really, really good. You're giving in the sense that your body is giving to him. Mm-hmm. But you're not having to do anything. Mm-hmm. The ideal for a woman is she doesn't have to do anything. Her body just naturally gives what it's got. And that's what's so glorious for a woman in a heterosexual relationship with a man or a homosexual relationship with a woman where she really feels her partner's focus and intention and attention. And she doesn't really have to do anything, which is much different from man's experience. So the... Uh, That's one of the great things about a woman is that you're giving just because of who you are. And the analogy which I make in the book, which is a little fanciful, but I believe it with all my heart, is that the primary, uh, most ancient form of this encounter is uh, the baby at the breast. The baby is taking from the breast, is not concerned about the breast. Mm -hmm. The breast is there, has got what the baby needs. The mother's, after breastfeeding gets established, is not concerned about the breast either. The baby is taking from it. She loves that she has these riches in her body that the baby wants and is getting and that her body just naturally is giving. She doesn't have to make an effort to give. So that's the language that I usually speak in the office. But it sounds like you meant something else. You were talking about something else about women who feel they have to give, feel they have to serve. I just think that it's sometimes difficult for women to feel even deserving of pleasure. Oh, okay. So it sounds like what you're talking about is for a woman to take. Yeah. Okay. Now that's really, really important. Okay. Because there's a misunderstanding that generosity is sexy. Mm. For instance, you read Cosmo. 
And nothing against Cosmo. I love Cosmo. But the headlines say seven things to do tonight to drive him crazy in bed. Mm -hmm. And a woman thinks, okay, I got to keep track. How am I going to drive him crazy in bed? And I say, you could just relax because I've never had a guy come into my office and say, oh, this woman I was with last night, she had all these things to drive me crazy in bed. Now, never say that. He goes, yeah, I was really attracted to her. That made it really hot. Okay. So, but now get to the next question, woman taking. Bottom line, that's sexy. Men find it sexy for women to be passionate. A man may enjoy the fact that a woman, say, wants to do oral sex on him, but if she's just trying to do it to give him the best experience, that's not quite as erotic as what men tend to want to watch on videos, Mm -hmm. which is a woman who adores it, who worships it, and who just wants it and is transported by it and finds it very, very passionate. Unfortunately for men, not that many women really feel that way about the male organ. Um, So (laughs) the only way you can get that if you're a man is either to be born gay. um, They're really lucky that way because guys do feel that way about the male organ Mm -hmm. or to watch a video. Mm -hmm. But a woman to take, a woman who is in a state of erotic uh, abandon, Uh, or even a woman who masturbates in bed. I talk to women in my office all the time about this. I say, you know, men pay good money to watch women masturbate in porn. (laughs) And women have trouble imagining that because women don't pay good money to watch men masturbate. It's not a turn-on for most straight women. Mm -hmm. But for most men, it's a turn-on to see a woman behaving passionately. So I would say a woman, take take all she wants. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Unless I'm missing something here. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And since you brought up porn, I know porn is responsible for sort of this escalation and, and I'm sure some of it is just people's natural inclinations, but like an, an, an escalation in riskiness, or I don't even know, I don't quite know the right language, but like whether it's kink or feeling mm-hmm. like you need tools oh, or absolutely. like all the things that are breaking into the mainstream, which then if you're like, I just like having sex in a bed. You're like, but th- is that, is there something wrong with Oh me? my God, it's so weird. It's so weird. I hear conversations in my office that I never could have imagined when I was in my 20s. A man's in bed with a woman and it's a first hookup and, sh- and, uh, and she goes, do you want to choke me? And do you think that that, that we're just at a time in the culture where people are like, this is actually who I am and now I'm totally free to express it, which is amazing and powerful. Or do you think that we are sort of pushing ourselves to what, what do you, where do you think it comes from? It's a great question. I'm sure that both are true. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some people who say, oh, I'm so glad that I live in the year 2018 where I can feel good about my wish to be choked. Right. Okay. Fabulous. Okay. As long as you choke you to where you asphyxiate, you know, you're good. You're right. But I believe for a lot of people, there's this feeling that that's what's expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, porn is all about camera angles. Mm-hmm. Most people have sex while embracing. They don't embrace during porn because it creates terrible camera angles. And there are a lot of things that people do, like really good cunnilingus, mm-hmm. would not give you good camera angles. So they do this extended tongue thing, which looks kind of <laughs> weird. And people unfortunately learn from that. So in porn, one, it's about camera angles. So it's not going to be realistic. Second is you're dealing with fantasy and fantasy has a short memory and it's always saying, okay, so what else? Mm-hmm. What have you done lately? So if you look on porn... These days, it's ridiculous. 
ridiculous. They have to go edgier and edgier and edgier, like stepfather doing it with a stepsister's brother and it's getting incest and it, the whole thing is just I like know. totally weird. Yeah. So what I say is, is that novelty thing is just going to go on and on and on. And it's really a distraction. What it's a distraction from is what we started off talking about today. It's a distraction from feelings. Mm-hmm. Are you getting dumb and happy? Do you feel validated? Is it making you feel good about yourself? Do you feel like you can just stretch out and get that weird thing of feeling excited and relaxed at the same time? Right. No. That- and you can't depict that. Orson Welles famously said, there are two things that can't be depicted on the screen, the sexual act and prayer. And I think it's really deep. I don't know what he meant. I wish he was still alive so we could ask him. But I do believe that you can't really depict the sexual act realistically on the screen. One of the things is you can't really, really get at the feelings involved. Right. No, it's definitely true. I mean, it's that dumb and happy. I mean, I wonder if, and and I'd be curious to know in your practice, is that sometimes enough? Or are the people who show up who are ready for sex therapy, is it typically, do people see you for a protracted period of time or are you, do you serve as sort of this like rehoning, like, let's just start, let's start at the basics? Great question. Great question. Cause it's really evolved <clears throat> back in the 1960s. Couples would come with two weeks with masters and Johnson and the expectation was that they would be cured. Mm-hmm. Problem was they didn't really do good follow-up. So often that wasn't the case. As it got into the 70s and 80s and 90s, it got merged with psychotherapy. So there was sex therapy and psychotherapy, and the patient, the therapist had hours to fill. And so you'd have this couple come every – and unfortunately, it went on and on and on and on, and it really was not a great idea. I've really gotten f- a little farther back to the original where I say, look, you can read my book, The Basic Principles. You can come in. Let's do a consultation. Famous psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott back in the 50s, he said, often you do a therapeutic consultation. So where you see where the people are, what do they need to help them just untie the knot a little bit? And then they can continue to untie it on their own. What do they need to give them some infusion of hope and possibility so they can get creative again on their own, which is the best? I consider ideally the consultation is maybe from one to four sessions and it's just kind of a tai chi, just Mm -hmm. to kind of use a person's natural energy and help them move in a direction that's going to be better for them. Mm. So I would say that's what I do most often. It's interesting. I would imagine that you you provide a lot of validation for people too who are like, is this normal? Like, oh, am my God. I normal? That's the big question. Uh, you know, my colleague, Emily Nagoski, she wrote a book called Come As You Are. Yeah. And she said the reason she wrote the book is she taught this class at Smith College and she gave all this facts and information at the end of the class. She said, uh, uh, tell me what you got out of the course. And over half of the women in the course said, I learned that I'm normal. Mm. So that's huge. Everybody has this sense because, you know, we have clothes, our bodies are covered up, sex is never done in public, and nobody really knows. And so people's imaginations go wild, and they think everybody else is having much better sex than they are, and everybody else is good and they're bad, which is a natural human shame response. You know, we, we therapists, we think of shame like dental hygienists think of plaque. You know, it just naturally accumulates if you don't take care of it. So mm-hmm. sex accumulates a lot of shame. Interesting. And there's just so much mythology, you know, like the raging male libido. The Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, that is in itself such a weird spiral too, to even understand what's the normal cadence. And what if this is, this cadence is satisfying, mm-hmm. you know, like, are you supposed to have sex every day? I don't know anyone who does. I don't know anyone who does either. <laughs> uh, by the way, are I, you supposed to have I sex only, every week? I only, well, actually that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea because it's natural 
for couples to not have the same kind of desire as a relationship gets established for many reasons. It's no longer novel. They don't really need the reassurance. They need, you know, first couple of weeks, you're doing it for reassurance mostly. And so couples don't really feel that sense of, I got to have it. If it, if I have it tonight, okay. If not, I'll have it next Tuesday. That's okay. Frankly, especially I'm 61, over the age of 50, you get this balance between sex and sleep. Most people yeah. over the age of 50, they'd much rather have a good night's sleep. So, which makes no sense to a teenager. They go, are you kidding? I'll take sex any day. So on the one hand, you've got desire, sex being fueled by desire. And that is just not the reality of most people's lives and long-term relationships. On the other hand, way over on the other side would be sex as an obligation. Well, we got to do it once a week. You don't want that either because that's not very erotic. That's going to kill your, your sexual climate together. What you want is something in the middle. And the best I, I come up with it, um, although it, it might turn off a lot of people who got turned off by religion early in life, is it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament in a relationship. Every couple develops kind of a private religion in their relationship, things that are special and unique to them and that are emblems and symbols of their relationship with each other and that are reminders of their relationship with each other, like anniversaries, things they say to each other, ways they are with each other. And sex ideally is a special sacrament within a relationship like that. It's like a sacrament within any religion and it's meaningful to people. It comes from the heart. So that's what I think of as the resolution to that. And because it's that way in my head, you're not really looking for desire at all. Mm. You're looking for inspiration. Mm. So you sometimes have a lot of inspiration and sometimes you have just a little bit. That's okay. Maybe you have a little more information next time. You know, Picasso said, when inspiration comes, it finds me at work. And I say, when inspiration comes, it should find you having sex. Ah. So in the idea of the sacrament, like, is this, is it, you need to go to church every Sunday? No, but if you don't perform some kind of sacrament within your private religion together, then you drift apart mm -hmm. and you lose that connection. And I think most sex therapists over the decades, myself included, kind of have a feeling that for most couples, there is something of a drifting away if you're not maintaining contact in that way at least once a week. Mm -hmm. And do you, within like sex, do you also, does that include all physical intimacy? Oh, great question. Great question. In my book, I talk about something I call simmering which has the relation, same relationship to sex as real simmering has to boiling. Mm. It's just applying a little bit of the heat just to warm things up. So woman is uh, making dinner and her partner comes over behind her, puts their arms around her, nuzzles her hair, inhales the scent of her hair, breathes with her, then turns her around, kisses her passionately, looks deeply into her eyes and says, oh, thank you. That was wonderful. Can I go read the paper now? <laughs> and if they're adequately prepared for this, she goes, oh, yeah, that was terrific. You know, it's like teenagers do in between classes in high school. You know, look mm -hmm. deeply into each other's eyes, feel each other up a little bit. And the bell rings. <laughs> they go off to their classes and they can't concentrate on anything for the next 10 minutes. That means they did it Just right. a little dry humping. <laughs> a little dry humping. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. In order to do that, though, you have to get over the idea that all arousal has to lead to orgasm and that all arousal has to lead to sex. 
because a lot of couples treat arousal like it's some kind of painful state of being. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of women, especially who have low desire, they go, well, I don't want to wear anything sexy to bed because my husband might get aroused. And I go, well, what would be wrong with that? Well, I don't want to have sex with him. That's okay. Weekly seems accessible. I think for, for so many people, it's this idea of like, if you're not doing it every couple of days or every day. Yeah. Well, I'm a little is... biased because I live in Manhattan. And in Manhattan, we all work 14, 15, 16 hour days. Of course, they do elsewhere in the country, but in Manhattan, everybody does. And I don't know any Manhattanites who have been in a relationship for more than three months who are having sex during the week. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much during the week you answer emails and then on weekends, maybe you have sex and you should do it first thing in the morning be- before you turn to your phones. Mm. Especially never do it after you go out to eat at night because you have the food and the wine and you're tired and that's just no good. So you want to have sex first and then go out to eat afterwards to celebrate. Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Dr. Steven Snyder today. One thing I found interesting was Dr. Snyder's perspective on narcissism and the idea that sex might be a form of healthy narcissism. For more from Dr. Snyder, check out his book, Love Worth Making, and visit his site, sexualityresource.com. You can also find a Q&A with him on goop.com slash the podcast. Okay, let's get to a question from one of you. Gina asks, how do I handle negative people? And I think my best answer to that is, and again, this is something that when I was younger, I absorbed much differently. But I think at this point in time, I try not to be around negative people. That's number one. Um, I really try to be fastidious about the people that I eat dinner with, work with, talk to on the phone, go on vacation with. And I can tell at this point, you know, when there are people who are in, have inherent negative energy, it's, it, it's very draining. I think it's, it's very important. You know, I think a lot of times, especially women, we think, oh, I have to be around this person. I have to be nice to them. And I think that sometimes, you know, that might be true, like physically and with physical proximity. But I think, we can also build up a good kind of what I call a buffering capacity. So, you know, sometimes I literally picture a kind of white spongy substance around my body. And I think like this person's energy is not going to, I'm not going to let it deplete me. And then I think another way to deal with it, you know, it's people who have negative energy are sitting on pain and that's all it is. So sometimes, you know, if you can really empathize and see underneath and understand why they have negative energy, it can diffuse it a lot of times. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.